At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. So hello and welcome to this new edition of the Drug Science Podcast. And I'm delighted to say that today I have with me a man who is famous, probably not for his name, but you will know it, but because of what he did. His Rat Park experiment has gone out down in the annals of both behavioral studies and also of sociological thinking about addiction. And of course, it's Bruce Alexander. Welcome, Bruce. Well, David, thank you very much. May I say I am honored to be uh, having a conversation with you at this time, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you again. It's been a few years since we last were at a conference together in Glasgow, I think, but it's, uh, it's good to spread your word and your understandings and also your wisdom now, because like me, you're getting on a bit. You've been around the block a few times, <laughs> both in, in relation to addiction and addiction policies. So I think there'll be a lot of people fascinated to understand a bit more about where you come from and uh, and what you've learned. Well, that's that's a very broad question. <laughs> well, why don't we start, Bruce? Why don't we start by telling people about yourself? I'd like to start with, where did you come from? You know, and how did you get into this field in the first place? Well, I came from a, a squalid part of New York City, New York City. And I grew up until I was 30 in the United States and became disillusioned. I, I thought I saw a country that was going crazy, or at least was making me crazy. So I left to go to Canada, and it was the best decision that I could possibly have made. So you made that decision at 13? 30, yes. It, well, see, Vietnam War. So you, uh, were you going to be caught up then? Oh, no, I wasn't going to be. But I, you can see now, perhaps much more clearly than we could see then, that that country is going insane. And it's the insanity has come to the surface now, but it was those of us who were working in government laboratories, let's say before 1960, could see it really clearly there. We could see, for example, how science and culture and government are so tightly interwoven. You know, I, I came to the conclusion that there was no such thing as independent science until I came to Canada. And then I, I relearned that there's a possibility of at least semi-independent science. So all of that, and that got me into the city of Vancouver, which is in the middle of a, a huge drug panic. So you left, you left the U.S., what were you doing at that point in the U.S.? Oh, I was working in a government laboratory in a medical school studying primates, monkeys. I was a reproductive physiologist. Uh -huh. So with a psychology with an endocrine basis. Yes, yes, yes. Now that's not immediately obviously relevant to addiction. So how did you morph into getting interested in the biology of addiction? Imagine landing in 1970 in the city of Vancouver when the city of Vancouver is in the midst of an incredible 
heroin panic. And the city of Vancouver has two huge medieval prisons, which are largely used to hold people who are caught on the street with, with heroin, and also some dealers and also some, some actual criminals. And when everybody knows the old story about heroin, which is that you just take it a few times and it seizes you by the willpower and then and then you become a kind of a drug zombie and you are consequently violent and, and crazy and people like you are destroying the entire country. This was, I mean, I say it in a mocking way, you can tell, but this is not far from, from the reality of, of 1970s drug panic. And we have since had other drug panics, you know, with methamphetamine and all the rest. This was the great heroin panic. And so there I was thrust into it as a new assistant professor with a new country. And uh, well, I had the opportunity to actually a very unusual opportunity. The first methadone clinic in Canada was in Vancouver. And it wasn't working out because the younger addicts you know, junkies, as they called themselves and as we called them, the younger junkies were taking their daily drink of methadone and then going out and buying heroin just like before and shooting it up and getting high. And so I got assigned the, by incredible stroke of luck, I got assigned the job of talking to these young, the younger junkies. The older ones were, were treating it more or less the way it was supposed to be treated, most of them. But the younger ones weren't. They were just using it as a, as a kind of a backup so they didn't have to buy as much smack on the street. So I got assigned the job of telling them about my vast knowledge of, of addiction from my graduate school training, <laughs> which was <laughs> of course, and telling them why they mustn't go out and, and buy heroin afterwards, but must instead forego the pleasure of the, the injection and go out and get an honest job. But again, by, by incredible luck, I had no power over them. I, I, I could not throw them off the program. Or I, I could not testify against them in court. That's just the way it was structured. And I wouldn't want to anyway. But because I had no power over them, and because I was telling them something they didn't want to hear, they didn't have to lie to me. They didn't have to lie to me. And so they told me all about why they were junkies. And that little bit of education has stuck with me throughout my entire career because they were explaining, you know, how, how exciting it is to avoid the, the cops and avoid the pushers that you owe money to and hang around with these other people like themselves, shabby people, and try every possible drug and, you know, experiment with different ways of stealing and stuff. And, and when they went to jail, they had to be very careful not to, not to get beaten up by the the, the more dangerous people in the jail, but they were telling me about the junkie culture and they were telling me about the junkie identity. Like they were real junkies. They were not skin poppers. I don't know if you know this term. Yeah. Yeah. But other, others may not. Others. No, you'd explain that. Okay. They were real junkies. They could take a, a dirty old rusty needle and they could stick it in a vein three or four times a day and they'd hit the vein and then they would they would be able they would have this rush and they'd be able they'd be conscious enough that they, they could not walk in front of a truck they could handle it whereas there were other people who weren't junkies they were skin poppers that means that they would give themselves an intramuscular injection 
without caring too much where it went, and it, they wouldn't get the real, the real junkie high. So I learned, I learned that there's a junkie culture and there's a junkie identity, and that this thing is precious. And to these these people who were officially heroin addicts, and therefore I learned that we have to understand addiction in a in a much broader way than simply a matter of a chemical hook and everything follows from there that from there we go to rat park and and we do some some experiments which seem to support that idea well that's quite a big jump from interviewing people in a methadone clinic to running experiments i mean we were you always doing both or did you have to then persuade your university to let you get back to to the bench so to speak or to the animal the animal floor I was always an assistant professor in those days, but I, I wanted to, to, I volunteered at, at the methadone clinic. Oh, I see. Okay, right. Yeah. I volunteered there because I wanted to learn about heroin because it was such a dreadful thing. It was going to destroy our civilization. And, and, and I, was, I, was, I wanted to be part of the actual way of controlling it. So I had to learn about it. But then now I have this little big piece of knowledge so you went out in your spare time to learn, but you had a laboratory where you were doing behavioral experiments, were you before, or were you doing physiologically? What were you doing before? Yeah, I'll tell you what, what it was. I, I hadn't yet an experiment, but I took my little bit of knowledge back to my classroom. And this is where undergraduates are so wonderful. And I told my undergraduates what I thought I was learning from the junkies at the methadone clinic. And one of my undergraduates didn't believe me at all. And he sprung up from the back row of my classroom and, and sh- almost shouted, haven't you heard about the rats? And, and by that he meant the rats in Skinner boxes that as you know, in the, in the 1970s, the rats in Skinner boxes would self-inject themselves with tons and tons of, of all kinds of drugs and including opioids. And he was telling me that, that those rats proved that the drug heroin was irresistible. And that all this that the junkies had told me was just just blabber. They were blabbering at me, and I, I shouldn't pay any attention to it. And I, I must say, I'm very grateful to that guy. I, I have come to think that that's why God gives us undergraduates. <laughs> he gives us undergraduates because he loves us, and he wants us. He wants them to say outrageous things, and he wants us to do important experiments to counter their outrageous statements. So a group of students and I, after the student, this outrageous student said what he said about rats, we, we built Rat Park because we wanted to, to show that testing a rat for drug consumption in a Skinner box was just about like testing a person in solitary confinement for drug consumption. In other words, the rat is tortured by his isolation. Yep. yep. And so if we had rats that weren't being tortured by their isolation, then they wouldn't take those huge amounts of, of drug consumption. And that turned out in various ways to be true. And that experiment, those experiments were done. We also had some non-replications. Bruce, I'm just interested in the, uh, this, have this vision of you and your students building a park. Is that what happened? Yeah. Yeah, we had a room in the psych department that was empty. And so we decided we will make an environment for rats. And we in Vancouver in those days, you it was easy to see where rats were happy, and that was on garage floors <laughs> when the cars weren't there. Because yes. if you 
from your garage door there, the rats all playing around on the garage floor. So we built, we built Rat Park. It was originally meant to be a garage, a mock-up of a garage floor. Oh, I see. What with tools and things, cars. Well, junk, 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 junk that, that rats like to play around on. So it was originally a mock-up of that. And, of course, we, we painted beautiful northern forests on the wall because that's what you see when you look out the garage floor, the garage window. And the rats were very cooperative. These rats who had been born in isolation and raised in isolation, you let them go in a, in a space where they, in Rat Park, where they have lots of, of room, they immediately form a social group. It's, it's, very, it's very natural to them. And the social group is relatively peaceful, except that the, you know, the males form a hierarchy and they, they fight a little bit forming the hierarchy yeah. and that determines who gets to impregnate the females. And pretty soon there's lots of little Norwegian rats running around the place, babies as well as, as adults. And then you can compare the drug intake of rats in this quasi-normal environment to the rats in cages, which are almost exactly like a Skinner box. So you use the same dispensing device you do in, for the, in the Skinner box and the, and the big park itself. I mean, because it must be quite difficult to know when there's lots of rats, which rats taking, <laughs> it could be a few rats taking it all. I mean, it, how did you manage to control for those kind of variables? Well, we had a, a very wonderful graduate student, Robert Combs, who is still in the business, and he he designed a machine. And the machine is, is such that when the rat crawls through a little hole in the wall, he comes to the left, and there is a liquid dispenser which which dispenses drug solution, or he can look to the right, and there is there is one which dispenses dispenses pure water. And meanwhile, the video camera is recording the back of this rat. And we have written on the back of this rat a letter. And so, so we know which rat it is. Now, the rat want to confound this machine by going in there two at a time and, and climbing all <laughs> over. <each other. laughs> but Robert Combs got very, very good. And in the end, he was quite confident that he could, that our data was, our consumption data was apportioned so that we knew which rat drank how much, which, as you know, is essential for doing the statistics. We could have done it without the statistics because the differences were so large. Yeah, yeah. But of course, you know, we, we psychologists must do our statistics. So we did our statistics and everything is statistically significant. And we did it both with rats that had been pre-addicted. In other words, that had been given nothing to drink but morphine hydrochloride solution for 60 days. And we did it with rats that were not pre-addicted. Well, let's start with the non-pre-addicted ones then, because that's, yeah. I suppose, the, that's the first sort of concept, isn't it? That you take take rats, and you give them it, you, in a broad environment, an interesting environment, the, this so-called park, and then you discover <laughs> that they get access, they discover that the morphine's there, and they, they take it, but they don't become obsessed with drinking it. Is that what you found? Yes. The, uh, the non-addicted rats... Oh, they all drank some of the drug solution. Yeah. But, and some, some drank a fair amount, but not, nothing compared to the rats in the cages. So it wasn't that they were abstaining. And the reason they were drinking it at all, of course, is that we had to sweeten it. I mean, you would know that, that morphine solution is extremely bitter and bitter to the taste. And, and no rat will, will drink it at all, unless 
you seduce the rat by putting sugar in it. So when we worked with rats that were not pre-addicted, we would first give them a choice between water and morphine solution, and they would they would maybe taste the morphine solution, but they would drink the water. They didn't want anything to do with that bitter solution. But then add more and more sugar to it, so it became sweeter and sweeter. And as it became sweeter and sweeter, the rats would drink more and more of it. We seduced them into learning the effects of the of the drug, like drink companies do with alcohol pops. Yes, yeah, <laughs> alcoholic drinks to get young people interested in alcohol. Yeah, they they seem to have adopted our method. Yes, it does sound like. I hope you patented it. You should be charging them. <laughs> well, no, better to to blow the whistle and, and yes, get them in trouble. Yeah, so that's what that's what happened. And but of course, what makes the experiment work is that the rats in cages were more seducible than the rats in Rat Park, and they they drank more and more of it. And and here's where we got our biggest differences. Sometimes sixteen times as much average consumption in the cages. As in Rat Park, and what does it show? Well, I think of it negatively. What it shows is that those Skinner box experiments—dare I say—are bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, irrelevant to most of the world. Yes. Yeah, they're irrelevant in the sense that they do not prove what they have been said to prove, which is that these rats are these drugs are irresistible to all God's creatures, including the lowly rat. Well, it isn't true. What what you have there is you've got rats that are that are being tormented by living their whole life in isolation, and they will take quite a bit of drugs. But that had seemed in the 1970s that had seemed to prove that these drugs were irresistible. What it proves nothing of the kind, because rats who had you know in a in a half reasonable approximation of a normal of a normal environment don't take anything like that amount of the drugs. So let's just reflect a bit, Bruce, on I mean, that myth. I call it the myth of the demon drug. Yeah, the myth of the demon drug. That's a good way of phrasing it. That's, I still don't quite understand the value of that in terms of, of understanding addiction. Or, or maybe, maybe it was more about trying to get funding for people who were anti-addiction. I don't know. What, what, what was the value of that construct in those days? The value is simplicity. We take a really, a really complicated concept like addiction, which we now know is very, very much more complicated. But in those days, addiction was terrifying us, and we simplify it. So now we say the addiction is caused only by the drug, the addictive drug. All we have to do is get rid of the addictive drug. All we have to do is put the people who sell the addictive prison in life and the problem will be gone and our society will be saved right kind of was the intellectual justification of prohibition and penalization get rid of the drug and the problem solved okay yeah and that myth it comes up over and over again i mean the current form of it is well one current form of it is these these opioids these these medical opioids which have been oxycodone or oxycontin and the idea is that somehow the reason so many people are taking so much of that stuff is that that stuff is irresistible. 
But of course, that stuff isn't irresistible. We, we now know, of course, that most people who use it, use it in ways which are relatively safe and they don't harm themselves, although some people do get addicted. But then it becomes, as soon as I start talking like that, it becomes complicated. But if I tell you, this drug is the devil, this drug is a demon drug, and you must never let your children take it, you must not take it yourself, because it will make you addicted. And then we have people like my neighbor down the road who um, is in terrible pain, but he won't take, won't take an opioid drug. He's afraid. And it's not my job to urge him to take it, because of course he has to make a decision, but he can't make the decision simply and clearly because of the myth. The myth persists. Now, this myth, as you would know, has been amply disproven. I mean, Rat Park is just one of the many, 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 many disproofs of this myth. And Rat Park is important, I think, not so much that it was a great experiment. It was a good experiment, but it's important because it has been <laughs> fabulized. It has been made into a fable. And so now lots of, you can tell your children the Rat Park story. You can tell, we can tell each other. And it's important. And in a way, it's like an Aesop fable. It gives us a little animal tale that tells us an important truth. And and the important truth, I always want to put in the negative form. There's no such thing as a, as demon possession. And you won't be possessed by the devil and you won't be possessed by drug. But you may become addicted and, and it's a very complicated story. And so now that we have all this literature disproving the, the demon drug myth, we still have the demon drug myth. It hasn't gone away. But people who, who pay attention to evidence know that it's untenable. And so now we have a field, a much broader field of drug addiction, where we can look at it in all kinds of ways through neuroscience, but also through sociology and history and all these things. We can make an attempt to understand it, and we have to understand it because addiction is killing us. And I say that not in the sense of the drug panics of the of the past, but in the sense of the current forms of addiction, which which terrify me. For example, <laughs> addictions to uh, political demagogues. These kinds of addictions are extremely dangerous, and we must understand them. We can't understand them if we're we're trapped with the myth of the demon drug. That just that just closes the doors on other understandings. Absolutely. We'll come back to that in a minute, then, Bruce. Uh, just one observation. I mean, that, it's interesting that you use the, the term the demon drug because that makes me wonder whether, in fact, Part of the driver here is this kind of extreme Protestantism or Puritanism that America <laughs> part was founded on. It's almost like a religious belief that drugs are are dangerous because it fits in with the religious narrative, do you think? Well, that's a question for me because I'm I'm in Canada, of course, but I'm right on the border of the United States, as most Canadian all of Canada basically is, is on the is on the border with the United States because it's cold up there farther north. But so I'm interested in how much of this mythologizing is American and how much of it is happening in Europe and other places. I know it's happening in the Philippines, but of course the Philippines is part of the American zone as well. Indeed. Yeah, I suppose you're right. The Philippines aren't Puritan, they're Catholic, but, but there is a yeah. sort of the, the Puritan, the, the American ethic of, um, of using force yeah. against drug users. I mean, as far as I know, America, the USA, is the only country that has its own army solely directed towards drugs. Is that right? Well, I think the Philippines does too. 
The Philippines now, yeah, okay, so it started the same, yes. And I think maybe Brazil is coming close to it. Yeah, yeah the point I would want to make, because this, this demon drug myth, you know, I'm sure it's not there at the same level in the UK or in Northern Europe or in many places, but it's, I think it may not be confined to the United States. I think it's a, you know, it's an ancient idea. If, if you look, for example, for cases of demon possession in the Bible, there are there are about a hundred, and I've read all hundred of them. Oh right, okay, you're the expert on demons. Okay, I didn't realize. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm an amateur. I'm an amateur, but I'm very interested in the idea because it seems to me it's always a simplifying idea. Mm, mm, because mm. how can how can we possibly understand that our little child has given up everything mm, mm, mm. in order to uh, pursue a crazy life as a drug addict or a crazy life as a uh, video game addict or or a crazy life as a political fanatic. How can we understand that? It must be a demon. And I think that's just a very natural way. And I think it's our, our job as scholars in these, yeah. these fields to insist on a more, a fuller explanation. Yeah, it's interesting. We say the same in the UK where, where we have a hysteria about cannabis causing psychosis and we have parents blaming their children for being schizophrenic because they smoked a joint i mean it's not only completely absurd but also completely self-destructive because of the, the expressed emotion really aggravates the child's um sense of you know mental disturbance so yeah it's a uh, trying to blame to go ex- externalize the problem is that you're right it's a way of simplifying it which is you know mostly not very useful I mean, your experiment had one one hugely important meaning for me, which the closest I think you intimated this, you know, earlier on in the conversation. That a rat in a isolated cage is like a prisoner in solitary confinement, and we know that prisons are places where people go to extraordinary lengths to take drugs just to ameliorate the misery of their environment and. I just wonder whether your work had any influence on the prison system, which, you know, because it uh, probably didn't, but it would have been nice if it did. Well, I don't know if my experiment had any particular influence, but I I know this. In my city, there were these two medieval prisons, huge. They're both gone. Now, I I don't think Rat Park (laughs) is responsible for their being gone, but what has happened over 50 years that I've been pursuing this is there has been a major, major change. So now we we simply do not Im- imprison people as much as we used to. And of course, we have prisons outside the city. I'm not saying that we have eliminated prisons altogether, but but these two, you know, forbidding, medieval-looking cast-type type prisons are gone. So I think there has been a major change in the way we think in the past 50 years, even though it's it's disorganized. We can't say that we have a a brilliant new paradigm. We don't. We're still in a state of, in, of intellectual confusion about the whole problem of addiction, but we have rid of, to a large extent, the oversimplifying myths which which crippled us in the past. And and I think that's something that we can we can all be proud of. Yes, there's definite progress in that sense, except in the Philippines. Yes. Well, let's look at the other side of the coin. So let's go back to the second part of the Rat Park experiment, which you which was the you, you testing the theory. What happens if you take someone who's, sorry, a rat, who has become addicted to this demon drug and is swallowing vast amounts every day, and then you take them out of their cage and you put them in the park? So tell us about that side of the coin. 
Well, we haven't done it quite that way, but what we have done is, is raised rats in cages and raised rats in rat park and then exchanged the environments so that the ones that were raised in rat park are tested to see how much drug, drug they will take in the cages. And the ones that are raised in the cages are tested to see how much drug they will take in rat park. And it turns out that it's really the term, there's a complex interaction there, which I, I, I don't even want to get into, but because it's too complex for me, I, even now I can't figure it out. But the overall effect, the simple effect is that it's the environment that you're in much more than the environment that you're raised in, which influence your drug consumption. If you're a rat, now bear in mind, rats are rats and people are people. And I do not want to make any complex or subtle conclusions about people from rats, but this is this is the case with, with rats. So while you were doing those experiments, Lee Robbins was kind of doing getting what I guess might be the closest to the human equivalent to that with her uh, analysis of the Vietnam vets coming back where large numbers of them had been put into a very strange environment where they didn't want to be and where they were very stressed and they were which is called Vietnam and they were taking a lot of drugs particularly heroin and then they came back to their American you know their hometowns and and generally things got a lot better so Presumably, she was very interested and supportive of, of your work. Do you think that validated what you'd found? Well, I think there are a whole bunch of us who were validating that same idea in various different ways. But I think the Vietnam experiment, of course, is definitive. And I've read it very, very carefully. And I, I just admire the way they have done it so much. They, they looked at everything. They made sure that these addicts who these let's say, addicted people who came back from Vietnam and were reporting now that they they really weren't interested in using heroin anymore, or at least not using much of it, not using it in addictive quantities or not using it all. They made sure that those people, some of those people also were telling the investigators that they had plenty of access to it. They could have bought it anytime they wanted. So it was not that it was harder to buy drug in the U.S. than it was harder to than it was to obtain it in, in Vietnam. It was they really didn't want it, and if they wanted it, they didn't want it in addictive quantities. Although a few did. But always that provision, as you know, the, always that provision has to come at the end. That, that, that Nothing is universal here. There's no universal truth, but there's always exceptions. But, but that experiment, I, I think, is uh, hugely important. But I think there are lots of experiments that are hugely important. I think the British experiments that... Uh, not so much experiments, but the British reports of non-addictive drug use going on for very long periods of time without turning into addiction are, are crucially important too. I think there's all, you know, we, we really have had a, a bit of a, a half a paradigm shift, let's say, in that, in that I, th I think if anyone actually sits down and reviews all the evidence against this demon drug myth, it's untenable. It's conclusive. It's gone. Which, oddly enough, though, it still lives in culture. It's like a ghost. You can kill it. You can kill it with, with data, but it persists in the culture. Well, I think it has political leverage. I think you know, 
drugs, I argue now that drugs are one of the few areas where, you know, it can dif- differentiate political thinker, political parties. And it's one of the few areas where politicians can have quite an, an, you know, they can make, they can legislate in a way which, you know, can, can give them some kind of leverage or advantage over their, over their opponents. It's one of the few vices that are left to legislate on. And would you mind giving an example of that? I'm not quite sure I follow. Well, I mean, in my lifetime, in your lifetime, we've seen a number of what you might call vices, morally opposed behaviors like being gay, you know, like having abortions. I mean, I know that things are changing in the US now, but but generally things which was deemed previously to be not acceptable for right, good quality humans to do have been accepted as a, you know, from argument and reason, yeah, as the ways forward. But the one area that has not really been legalized, and certainly not in any country, a possible exception of cannabis in Canada, is drug taking. Yeah, it's still seen as a moral, a moral failing in for almost every country in the world. I think. Yes, but wouldn't you say that it's it's less moralized now? It's more medicalized. So when we the arguments that are now given against drug use are more medical relative to moral, whereas previously they were more moral relative to medical. And and here's where you and I, of course, may not be on exactly the same wavelength. I have found that my most useful understandings of drug addiction and, and addiction in general are historical and anthropological. And this is a big change for me, of course. I, I start in a medical school. That's That was my first job, was it was in a medical school. But, but I've, I've come to think that whereas, of course, there is a physiology of, of everything we do, and, and of course, there is a, a neuroscience, there's incredibly good neuroscience research on, on drug use and drug addiction, some of which has been done precisely by you, that really our breakthroughs are going to come, I think, in anthropology and history. As we, I think it is in those ways that we're going to finally get our, our way out of this. Which is not to say, of course, Bruce. I wouldn't dispute that at all. I think we could reason our way out. We can social change is, and, and as you say, looking, improving your model, your model of, a, of a, a world. I presume, which is where everyone's in a park and everyone, no one's living in ghettos, and everyone has opportunities and the chance to be exercised and to create that. I think you know that's a that's going to be hugely protective against people becoming addicted to drugs. Completely agree with you. I still think there might be a biology to it. Of course, of course, there's a biology to it. I mean, one would have to be very foolish to deny that. But there's just a question of of which analysis is going to get us where we need to get. And of course, it's important. Yeah. I did wonder whether you thought it, do you think it's something to do with endorphins, perhaps? Do you think, you know, the happy rat's got more endorphins, therefore doesn't need to supplement them them with morphine? Of course, of course, it, it, it could be that they have more endorphins. On the other hand, I don't need to know that. All I need to know to understand is to see that they're busy, they're occupied, and they're happy. I mean, you said, you said the happy rats. Well, they really are happy rats. You could you can honestly tell. Yeah. That's why it's important to see them. We spend a lot of time just looking at them, and you don't need to see their endorphin levels, but you need to see the the kind of way in which they prance about and <laughs> do their do their ratty social life. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. So, what what about the current this huge opioid supposed opioid crisis in America, which you've already touched on a bit? I mean, I'm interested in your uh, 
a perspective on why it's happened and how we might deal with it? Well, of course, I am not an expert, of course, and I, I guess like anybody else, but I have a, I have a guess I would like to, to say, which is that the areas of the United States which had the biggest effect in the methamphetamine, the biggest catastrophes in the methamphetamine era was a certain identifiable area of the U.S. And the area which has the biggest catastrophes in the Purdue Pharma OxyContin era, those same areas, and the areas which have the biggest output of political fanaticism now, the kind of political fanaticism which is the country to its knees, are those same areas. And that if we look in those areas, they are historically, what we see is the, these are areas which have, have undergone truly traumatic reversal of, of their fortunes. Areas where in particular white people were doing pretty well since World War II in, in every way. And now their lives have, have just gone, gone downhill amazingly. Not only have they gone downhill amazingly, but their their self-respect has gone downhill because people used to think of these people as the salt of the earth, and now now they're more as as disreputable people. These people have been traumatized, and I like to use the word dislocated. They have been psychologically dislocated. Yeah, no, that's a very good term. Truly, a tragic and pathetic way, and they have turned. You know, in the 80s and 90s, they, they turned to methamphetamine. Many of them turned to methamphetamine. And then in the early 2000s, many of them turned to OxyContin. And, and many of them turned to political fanaticism and religious fanaticism. I want to guess that that's all one thing. That in all of those instances, we're talking about the problem of addiction in a collapsing empire. And that we could make those same kinds of observations, I think, if we look at the late Roman Empire. I'm a particular fan of St. Augustine, by the way. I don't know. Have you read the Confessions recently? <laughs> no, but I've been to the church, if that helps. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's talking about all these same kinds of, of addictive patterns in the declining empire. So, it's a tough time when empires decline, as everybody knows, especially you know, <laughs> British people and, and American people, and we all know. It. And I think that it's on that level that we're going to understand why we have problems like the, the Oxycontin problem and the, now the fentanyl problem. And it's on that level that I reach the end of my career here and I say, I don't know how we deal with problems like that. I don't know. I know we have to. Are you still working in the lab then? No, I'm, I'm currently, at the moment, I'm working in my wife's sewing room. Uh, <laughs> and I haven't, I haven't been in a rat laboratory since 1985. But I, I am. I find myself still working. I've, I've failed at retirement. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, you're, you may be in danger of the same kind of failure. I feel so. <laughs> but I enjoy so. I enjoy so because it gives me a chance to talk to people like you. Yeah. Well, but I've, I've been doing a lot of reading. For example, I have now, do you know Ian Kershaw, the great British historian of, the, uh, of World War II? He writes monumental books. 
so I have I have read these monumental books, and what I'm learning is about the addictive commitment of millions, tens of millions of of Germans, not only to their Führer, but also to their Reich, and how totally addictive this kind of commitment was. And again, it's on that level that I think we're going to have to complicate the the story of addiction so much that it includes that, and then I think we'll be able to comprehend it. So I have failed at addiction by uh, just, I suppose, by becoming addicted to reading and and realizing that we're we're living in a golden age of historical literature. So much is is being written that's so useful. Well, Bruce, you may not know this, but the drug science charity, which is putting out this podcast, also publishes a journal. Uh And we call it Drug Science Policy and Law. And if you want to write an essay for us, what we can learn about addiction from the Second World War, I'd be delighted to see it. Oh, 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 I do want to write it. Yes. <laughs> okay, you can do that. And, you, and if you want to make mention of the, the use of uh, stimulants in the Panzer divisions as well, feel free. But you don't have to. You can just talk about the psychology, all right? Yeah, and of course the, the use of stimulants in the Panzer divisions, especially in France, was decisive. Of course it was. But I think I do think we have to, to be a little bit reserved about the the talk about Hitler being a drug addict. I, I think that you know his drug use came very late in the game. In the, yes, I mean, really in 1942. It was shoring him up a bit, wasn't it? I think his addiction was absolutely clear long before he, and he, you know he was a almost a teetotaler and and yes, uh, that's right. Yeah, ve- a vegetarian as well. Interesting. And resistant to all kinds of drugs until the very end, when of course he, when he fell into into ruin. Yes. Well, Bruce, that's a great that's a great point at which to end. I mean, it's obviously kind of topical that we're talking as we are now with the uh, the Russians invading Ukraine, and so some of the lessons of the Second World War have not been learned. But but maybe maybe some of the protagonists will listen to this podcast and listen to you and reflect on becoming a little bit wiser in what they do. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and I'm going to say keep on, keep on the, keep up the good work. But I, I think that maybe shouldn't be. That's not a very fair request because you've done so much for so long. I want to thank you for it. Well, I want to say to you how wonderful it is that you're doing these podcasts, and and indeed, if I may borrow a phrase, keep up the good work, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye, David. <laughs>